In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, as you know, we normally go through books of the Bible in a little bit more uh, systematic fashion, looking at the parts and the whole and trying to understand them. And um, we're taking a break from that to focus on the nature of the Reformation and this idea of, uh, well, 500 years ago in just two days, uh, it was when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door of the church, the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31, 1517. And, you know, when he nailed those theses to the door, he was really inviting a scholarly debate about the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. It was even posted in Latin, so it wasn't, nobody would be able to read it unless they were academically trained. And so he posed these things. He wasn't seeking to... Um, create a new church. He was seeking to reform the church, hence the name Reformation. That's why we celebrate the Reformation. He was seeking to reform this church. And he, uh, so he posted these, and, uh, and it really ignited a, a, a debate that became a cultural revolution in which we're in its wake right now. Uh, but the central theme, or the central question of this debate is how can a man or how can a woman be made right with God? How can they be made right? How can they be reconciled to God? This is a question many of us ask uh, in life, it, particularly in dire threats. So just had an interesting experience. My a nephew on a flight, and uh, um, one of the engines, they heard it pop. And uh, on this airline with two engines, one went down, the cabin filled with smoke, and uh, for 20 minutes, uh, it took 20 minutes for the plane to uh, complete an emergency landing. And during that 20 minutes, there was much crying, groaning, and moaning. Well, you know, well, they're thinking about issues that they have easily pushed off until then. I mean, they were thinking about life and death and God, and am I right, am I not? Don't even know all the gods that they were thinking of, but, but you know they were coming to some point of transcendent questioning. Now, you know, those events bring you right to the precipice that life kind of distracts you from. But many of us, if you, long, if you live long enough, you begin to ask those same questions. What, am I right with God? What will it be with God? How will I see God? What will I say to God? What will I say to God? Well, the Reformation sought to answer those questions. And, and bit by bit, we've been trying to work through this over the past four weeks. You know, what we found is that being right with God is found in the truth of Scripture alone. That the Scripture contains that which we need to know to be made right with God. And, and in the Scripture alone, we find this doctrine of God's grace alone. That, that we're saved through God's grace. In other words, there's no merit, there's no works that we can do to secure it, but God just freely gives it. And this gracious salvation that's given... Uh, comes to us through faith alone. Faith doesn't justify us, but we're justified through the faith that we have 
in Christ alone. This is the fourth sola, sola Christus. It's faith al- or Christ alone. That, that at, the, at the, the anchor is tied to this doctrine that Christ alone in his perfect work saves us. This is what the Reformation is about. Now, you know, there's many things in life you know, I, w- I want to, as I've been explaining, uh, both at the beginning and as the different preachers have shared, this is not new, this is not innovative, this is not a new discovery of teaching here. You know, this is kind of a recovery, a recovery that led to great joy. So you, you all know you've lost things and you've found them, and there's been great joy. Think of something that you've lost that was important to you. When you found it, you were happy, you rejoiced, it was a natural response. We even see this in the Bible. If you read Luke 15, you know, Jesus gives these three parables in a row, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, and each one was found. And, and in the finding of each one, what is, what is the response? It's joy. He says in John or um, Luke 15, 10, Jesus says that there is greater joy in heaven among the angels over one sinner who repents than the 99 who needed no repentance. There's joy, and that's what these reformers found, this this joy in, in recovering this gospel, this assuring gospel that we're saved through Christ alone. So that's what we're going to look at this sermon, what was lost, how was this gospel of grace lost, and then how was it gained? How did these reformers discover or recover it? And then how do we celebrate, how do we rejoice in it? So those are the three steps we'll be making. How was it lost? I think it's, it's clear in Scripture uh, that this doctrine is there, right? You think of maybe Jesus saying, I've come to seek and save the lost. Or Peter saying, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved except Christ. Or you think of Paul saying in his letter to Timothy, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, and it deserves your full acceptance, your full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that Christ is the Savior of sinners. This is clear. But it got lost. Now, how did this gospel of Christ alone get lost? Well, it got lost not by deletion, but by addition. In other words, the church began to add to the work of Christ the works of men and women. In other words, this idea that men and women had to cooperate with God to secure the perfect merits of Christ for themselves. You know, Thomas Aquinas was the, probably the quintessential scholar of the Roman Catholic Church, and he said these words. He says, Christ's passion, or his suffering, that which he did to merit salvation, Christ's passion works its effect on them to whom it is applied through faith and charity, or acts of love, and the sacraments of the faith. In other words, Aquinas was adding human cooperation to the works of Christ. It's our way of tapping into the vein of healing. It's our way of getting that which we need to be made right with God. Well, how did they advance this? Well, the church taught a number of ways that you can secure this grace from God so that you'd be made right with God. One was through confession. The priest was the mediator between God and man. And so you would go to the priest and you would confess your sins to him and he would pronounce absolution or this ecclesiastical kind of giving of forgiveness. 
And then you would go and do the penance that he required. It may be prayers. It may be acts of charity. I was raised in the Catholic Church um, and went to Catholic schools for the first nine years of my life. So I went through this many, many times. You would go and, and sit in the confessional, which was this little closet, if you will, with a priest right next to you, and they would open the slide, and, and you would say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was. And that's when you could get in trouble. Because if you said like four years or five years, then you could usually expect a storm of fury to come from the other side of the confessional closet. In fact, I remember... One time, they would make us go once or twice a year when we're in school, and we'd be lined up in a queue, and I remember being the next one in line. My friend went in, and he's confessing his sins, I guess. You don't hear, it's kind of muffled. And I heard the, <clears throat> the priest, boy. It was a takedown, is what it was. And that's when I had Protestant leanings, because I immediately began to confess all my sins to God right there by myself, so that when I went in, I didn't have to divulge it all, but I left enough to make sure that I could throw them off the scent. And, uh, but, but that's what they, it was a means of grace. You know, that God is pronouncing forgiveness through the priest. He was the mediator of the grace of God. But not just through confession, through acts of piety, through making pilgrimages to holy sites, indulgences, uh, giving money, doing acts of charity, Praying to saints, these are ways that you're tapping into that unlimited merit of Christ to be made right with God. Or veneration of relics. Vener it's still done today. A relic is, could be ashes or a bone or some personal possession of an apostle or some holy man or holy woman. And, and if you look at these or pray to these or some even kiss these, that you would be tapping into grace. Now, Frederick the Wise was the benefactor of Martin Luther. He was the one that funded the chair that he occupied in the university teaching theology. And he had an, a remarkable collection of relics, remarkable. He had 19,013 of them. He had supposedly a hair from the beard of Jesus. That's a big deal. He had a twig from the burning bush. He had a piece of gold from the wise men. He had, those two good ones, and I got one in my mind. He had, what else did he have? A piece of bread from the Last Supper. And his favorite saint was Anna. He had her thumb. <laughs> now how he got that and when he got that, I have no idea. But he had her thumb. But these were, these were, assets of the holy ones, and you could look at it, but that was a means of grace. And people found confidence in them, and they would walk through and look at and pray. They needed to do that to get the grace needed to be made right with God. It was a tapping into what Christ had done through their efforts. Not just that, but there's also communion, taking communion. You know, when you lift up, the priest lifts up the bread and he prays, the bread is transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. Well, then in ingesting the bread and drinking of the wine, you are partaking in God's grace. Or if you were stouter of heart, you could join the priesthood or the monastery. That's what Luther did, the Augustinian order. He joined it as a means of finding peace with God through his efforts to get at the merits of Christ. 
Now, what was the result of all this teaching? Well, you'd think, was it celebration and assurance? No, it was anguish and it was despair. This is what Martin Luther called anfektung. I didn't curse at you, it's a German word. Anfektung, it was despair, it was dread, it was fear, it was foreboding doom. Because he knew he hadn't done enough. Martin Luther knew clearly the holiness and righteousness of God and he knew his own sin. And how can you be right with God? As we read last week in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, kept a... Now think of your life when I read this one. Just think of your life lived to this day. If you, Lord, kept a record of my sins, who could stand? Who could stand before God? Does anybody feel that they could stand before God? And this caused him to despair. This is why he would spend hours in the confessional. Because only the sins that were enumerated in the confessional were forgiven. So he'd, he'd confess for hours, and then he'd leave and he'd think of some foible that he committed, and he'd run back in. And then he began to be tortured over, have I confessed with true contrition? Was I, true sorrow, was I truly sorrowful for my sins? You can just imagine how this began to torment him. And then you live in an age where death is always a reality. Mortality rates, we went through those a few weeks back. And you're just in despair. You're in despair over the nature of, of what have you done enough. This is the loss of the gospel. Jesus came and he said, I've come to give life and give it to the full. And there was no full life here. There was anguish and despair and doom and dread before standing God. Before, or standing before God. So two things that were happening here. One is the addition. So it was Jesus plus penance and Jesus plus purgatory and Jesus plus praying to saints and Jesus plus communion. So there was the addition that was losing the gospel. There was also the insertion of the church. See, the church administered all these things. And so what the church was doing is they were putting themselves between God and man. The church itself was becoming the mediator between God and man. And this blinded the view of sinners to see the finished and the beautiful work of Christ. It began to leave sinners without hope. In despair. This Jesus plus idea, do you struggle with this? I mean, do you find yourself appealing to God based upon Jesus, but then you begin to look at your own catalog of behavior? as to that which should put you in right standing with God? Do you kind of, maybe even innocently, begin to lean on what you've done, or how good your week has been, or how devoted you have been, or how holy you've felt? Do you, do you kind of just lean on those things for confidence? In, in, in that is a losing of the gospel. In that it, it's an addition to the gospel. It isn't trusting in Christ alone that our hope comes from him alone. This is what they were doing. This is what we do now. Many evangelicals asked, what saves? It, it still comes to Jesus and, Jesus and something else. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book called The Screwtape Letters. Many of you have read that book. It's a book about, kind of it's a tongue-in-cheek book about a senior devil instructing a junior devil on how to work against people becoming Christians or if they're Christians, trying to undermine their Christianity. And, and one, of the, one of the discussions of the dialogue, the, the chapters are just by various dialogue and, and letters. One of the letters was entitled, Jesus and, here's what he says, 
So this is a senior devil talking to a junior devil about undermining a Christian. He says, what we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychic research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their whore of the same old thing, just the gospel. It's amazing. Jesus and. Well, what would these reformers do? How they, how they rediscover the gospel? Well, simply put, they read the Bible. They began to read the Bible. Now, that seems just lunic, lunacy to you. But remember this, the Bible was in Latin. It wasn't translated. Most people couldn't read Latin. The, the services, the masses were in Latin. And the Bible wasn't spread out among all people. So they just began to read the Bible. They read things like John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's not a way, a truth, a life, but he is the way. Jesus is saying, I am it, I'm the door. I'm the one. Or you think of 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. Or 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. You see this, the reformers read the Bible and they saw that in his life and his death and in his resurrection, that he alone can reconcile us to God. The issue here was the Roman Catholic Church didn't debate about the exclusivity of Christ. They didn't debate that there were other saviors. That was beginning to come up in the culture. But their issue was the sufficiency of Christ. Was Jesus sufficient to save? Had he done enough? Or what do I have to do to add to him? What life do I have to live to add to his vicarious death? And this is what the Reformers taught, that Christ alone is sufficient. He alone is sufficient. And here's what they found. And let me break it to you into two boxes. They saw that in Christ we are declared righteous. In other words, we call this an active righteousness. This means that Jesus Christ came to take on flesh and live among us to live a life we could never live. So he lived in absolute perfection without sin. He's called the second Adam, you know, because the first Adam was sinless, but he sinned. The second Adam, Jesus, he was sinless, but he did not sin. He committed no sin. He lived according to the law for the glory of God such that when God spoke about his son, he says, this is the son in whom I'm well pleased. God is pleased to him. Who else can God say that about? He can say that about no one else, because no one has been sinless, but Christ has. He has pleased the Father. So in Christ, through faith, in union with him, we enjoy the fruit of, of his perfect life. This is what we call imputed righteousness. That Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, has given to us, through faith, his rightness. So that now when God sees us, he sees us in the rightness of Christ. You are not experiencing that on an everyday basis. That's why he says you're being declared righteous. God is choosing to see you in Christ. It's in your union with him that he now sees you as Christ.
That's what we believe by faith. This is what frees us. But not just active righteousness. Christ also came to die for our sins. This is called a passive righteousness because he laid down his life. He took upon himself our sin and our shame and our guilt. That he has borne the wrath of God. So the law that we didn't commit, the law that we broke, he paid the punishment for the breaking of that law. That all the righteous anger of God fell upon the Son. He was, he was loaded with our guilt. Not Now listen, in our culture today, guilt is kind of along the stream of, well, there's guilt and there's, there's victimhood and there's shame and there's terms like brokenness. Uh, all those can mean similar things, but let me make sure you understand that guilt is a wrong position before God. You have sinned against Almighty God. Uh, shame can come perhaps through other ways. A sense of brokenness can come from just the fallenness of this world, but guilt is that idea that I have sinned against God. And that's what he paid for. And this is what brought the Reformers. When the Reformers looked at 2 Corinthians 5, 521, it says, For our sake, he who knew no sin was made sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Luther called the great exchange, that our sins were given to him, and he bore the penalty. His righteousness was given to us. We're now seen free in Christ. This is what they discovered. This is why John Calvin wrote these words. He says, Christ stepped in, he took the punishment upon himself, and bore the judgment due sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. So we look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. We look to Christ alone. Now, folks, let me remind you, this is not new. This idea of Christ being a sacrifice, reconciling us to God, it isn't new. You saw it in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and God comes and finds them. They're lost in their sin, and he finds them. And what does he do? He covers them with the skins of animals. Animals were slain. There was a sacrifice made to cover them in their sin. But you see it in, the, in Isaac and Abraham. The lamb caught in the thicket. It was slain instead of Isaac. You see it in the Passover lamb in Exodus. You see it in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. That the lamb bears the penalty. The lamb is the sacrifice. Now, in the sacrificial system, you see this introduction of a mediator, the high priest. He comes with the lamb. So, so everybody was looking. We need a sacrifice. We need a mediator. We need a mediator to come before God, man, with the blood. Well, then we have Christ. This wasn't lost on John the Baptist. When he saw Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he comes and he takes both things, and he is that in himself. We see this in Hebrews chapter 7. Unlike the other high priests, he does not offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. So he's the high priest who sacrifices himself fully so that now we can be reconciled to God. Jesus stands as a perfect mediator, reconciling. He's paid the debt in full. There's no more payment required. There's nothing you need to add. There's no change you need to make. There's nothing to add to his work other than believe. It's like you raise the empty hand of faith and you're saved. Asking for salvation. Like the thief on the cross, would you remember me? doesn't get any simpler than that. He brought nothing but his sin. 
We're going to sing at the end, Rock of Ages. Listen, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. If you're not a Christian, and you have asked yourself the question, how can I be right with God? Or maybe you have been in the faith, and, and, and you, you believe in Jesus, but you've always rested in these works that are needed to somehow affirm what Christ has done. Um, he calls simply for this empty hand to be stretched forth. This is hard. To believe in Christ alone is not easy. Even Martin Luther said these words. He says, what I'm telling you is that it's easier for us humans to believe and trust in everything else than in the name of Christ, who is all in all. It's easier to trust in ourselves. It's easier to trust in Christ and the things that I've been doing. It's something material and visible and measurable. These I can look at and feel better about myself. We're called to cut those things loose. Uh, to come to Christ, who is sufficient to save, it demands that we understand what the Bible says, that we are sinners, that we're broken, that we cannot save ourselves. We can't add even a little bit to the work. That we have to trust what the Bible says, that we are without hope. We need to be completely delivered and completely saved. We need, you know, when you look back at your life, do you see this? I mean, do you see a trail of lying and manipulating and lusting and arguing and murdering? Do you see that you're a real sinner in need of grace? This is one more thing that Martin Luther said. I love this. He says, for this is the, the most sweet mercy of God, that he saves real sinners, not imaginary sinners. And not those sinners who think they're, I'm a, you know, I don't do everything perfect and everything, but... Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. You know, that, that to Martin Luther is an imaginary sinner. He doesn't really think he's a sinner. He doesn't really think he needs to be delivered completely. He doesn't think. He just needs a little help. If Jesus just gives him a little hand to get out of the hole, then he's fine on his own. He's saying no. He says, this is the most sweet mercy of God, that he saves real sinners, not imaginary sinners, that he upholds us in our sins until he makes us perfect. For he himself is our sole righteousness until we're conformed into his likeness. What he's saying is, in this life, we're real sinners. We need him every step of the way. He's upholding us, even though we're sinning, until he completes us. This is what the Christian thinks. This is what the Christian knows. I need the gospel. Not at conversion, I need the gospel every day. So what do we do here? It's been lost with the addition of things. Think of this. It's like a beautiful painting that was exquisite to behold. But over the years, the dust and the grime and the soot <laughs> covered it. And it lost all of its luster and beauty. And then it was discovered again. It was cleaned. It was removed. It was held out. And when you'd see it again, you'd celebrate its beauty. That's what we're called to do with this Reformation. It was, the gospel was lost, and by God's grace it was discovered. It was recovered. It was found, and now we can rejoice in it. So how can you rejoice in this? Well, let me just give you a couple things. Uh, number one, you can rejoice by enjoying the free and the full access you have to God. Jesus, as our high priest, gives us the ability to come before God. No more meteor, 
no more mediators are needed. You know, when, when I was being raised as, as a Catholic, I would pray to St. Christopher when I travel, and I would pray to St. Anthony when I lost something. These are the patron saints of travel, and I guess he was the patron saint of losing things, but, but th these were these saints that we appealed to to get to God. My dad would always tell me, be sure to say your Hail Marys. I'd say, well, why do you want me to pray to Mary, Dad? And he would say, you pray to Mary. That's what you're just supposed to do. And my dad was trying to do the right thing. And the upbringing he had, the understanding he had, but, but it was a, it was a wrong-headed approach to appealing to God. You and I now have free, unfettered access to God. If you don't know what it means that the curtain was torn in two, after the service, ask somebody just next to you, what does it mean what does it mean that the curtain was torn in two? Why is that good news for us? For those of you who know it, you know it's free access to God. Listen, in Hebrews 3, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who is ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach God's grace, God's throne of grace, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you take advantage of that? You have a new standing. You're in Christ now. You're different than you were. And so you have a new standing, which means you can boldly approach. So if you're struggling in life right now with marriage or finances or job, or if you're struggling with sin, or if you're struggling with anger and bitterness, are you really taking advantage of the access that you have. He says, come boldly. Why? You have a high priest. You have a mediator. You have one who puts his arm on God, as it were, and puts his arm on you. He has reconciled you to the Father. You have access to God. Do we take advantage of this? Do we celebrate? You can't get the ear of your congressman or the senator, but you can come before God. Okay, secondly... Do you enjoy the full forgiveness that Jesus Christ has provided? The full forgiveness. Listen, many of us, I find, in the Christian faith, uh, we have this joy over at conversion. We feel that our sins have been forgiven. The load has been taken off our shoulders. We are happy in Christ. We've been forgiven. And then you begin living the Christian life, and you begin to feel like this, I'm struggling with sin. You, you feel like you're constantly in this battle. And, and you actually have less joy in the nature of the gospel as you're going through the Christian life than you felt at the beginning of your Christian life. It's a struggle. You begin to wonder, am I really saved? And uh, when is this patience going to run out with me? And I've crossed this line so many times, I can't ask forgiveness again. And and we just kind of walk ourselves back from the gospel because of the, you know, you may be 10 or 15 years in the faith. What the, what the Reformation reminds us is that he has saved you completely to the uttermost. That in his death, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is showing us, he's quoting Psalm 22, and he's reminding us that he has borne the curse of your sin and the resultant separation from God, so that you will never bear that. You know that idea in Genesis 2, it says they were naked and they were unashamed. 
Adam and Eve were naked. They were fully transparent before God and each other. There was no shame because there was no sin. You go right to Genesis 3, you find that they were naked, and now they were ashamed. Why? Because of their sin. They're covering up. They're, they're afraid of God. They run from God. And so when Jesus Christ was crucified, he was crucified how? Naked on a cross, reminding us he has borne our shame. You don't need to bear the shame anymore. We, we repent we are convicted and we repent. But we don't bear that shame anymore. The assurance that you have of forgiveness isn't rooted in you. It's not rooted in how you feel. You go back to the gospel. Christians, that's why we preach the gospel every week here. Again, Martin Luther gives us wisdom on this. He says, any theology that turns you back to yourself for assurance is no assurance at all. It, it can be mis so misleading. He says, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Just tell him that. Just remind him where he will be, so will I be. Because we're not trusting in how we're feeling about the nature of forgiveness. We've heard the one who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has borne the punishment and the shame. When you, when you sang that song, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, did that third stanza, did it, did it bring home anything to you when he says, he says this, here we have a firm foundation, here, refuge of the lost, Christ, the rock of our salvation, his the name of which we boast, lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt, none shall be confounded who on him their hope have built. He bore that awful load. Okay, the third thing I'll say about the nature of the Reformation, not just that we have access and full forgiveness, and I, I guess I'm calling the Christian here, to walk in the full forgiveness and you will have a joy that is profound. You won't be dragging around the skeletons of past life. The third thing would be that the Reformation reminds us. It's the impetus for missions. It's the encouragement to declare Christ's name to the nation. Now listen, in this time, as I mentioned, uh, there was no real debate about the exclusivity of Christ. Uh, most in the church would have known that Christ alone was the Savior. Again, he wasn't sufficient for them. They needed to add it to the work, but that he was alone the Savior. Now, now Michael Servetus and others were beginning to raise up this understanding that maybe he was not unique. So it wasn't as much a problem for them, but it is for us now. And so this doctrine of Christ alone as Savior is important because now there is this increasing you know, almost a, a viral kind of, uh, of all kinds of paths up the mountain to salvation. Uh, in fact, with the rise of postmodern thought, you know, postmodern thought has, has really cemented this idea that truth is a human construct. It's just something we construct. If that's true for you, great. If it's true for you, great. Even though they're contradictory, you both can be right. It's a postmodern thought. We've lost We've lost our moorings. It's like the boat that isn't tied down you know, with an anchor anymore. You just float wherever the, wherever the tides are dragging you. So with the rise of postmodernism and with the rise of religious pluralism, um, it, it's crazy to think that there is an exclusive way. 
And this is kind of the, the child of the Enlightenment. So, so Gotthold Lessing uh, was a philosopher out of the Enlightenment. And here's what he said. He said, how could the life and death of this one man nearly 2,000 years ago have universal and relevance for all humans? That's what people think. Come on, how can it be? But that's what the scriptures teach. This one man, this one God-man is the only mediator between God and man. Now listen, this is in the evangelical church. 35% of seminarians in, or uh, yeah, evangelical seminarians in evangelical seminaries say this, according to the University of Virginia sociologist James Hunter, they deny that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary. That is one. So, so that the poison is in the church. So, so I'd rather go with the words of Swingley, Ulrich Swingley, one of the reformers, contemporary Luther, who says, Christ is the only way of salvation of all who were, all who are, and all who ever shall be. That he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father through me. This will always be a sticking point. It was a sticking point in the time of Jesus. When the gospel went out into the Mediterranean basin, and, and, and Paul was beginning to preach in Greek culture, they had, they had a pantheon of gods. It, it's no different then. We're just returning to that time. We still uphold that Christ alone saves. So this is a doctrine that has been lost. It has been found, and we want to celebrate it. We do not want it to be lost again. We are the holders of this truth by God's grace. So let's live in it and enjoy it and celebrate it. Let's take a minute now and just, just ask God for grace to understand this. Perhaps confess if you have been adding to his work. And I'll close this in just a moment.